Hey everyone, I am Farah Kimji and you are listening to the Futura Talks podcast. I believe the future will be built by those who see opportunity where others see uncertainty. It will be built by people that don't look like the traditional leaders of our past, but by women and individuals from diverse backgrounds that see the world differently and who are driven to make it better for all. This podcast will feature these people, self-made leaders and entrepreneurs that defy odds and are motivated to build a better future. We will also share practical advice for how you can unlock your full potential as the leader of your own Futura. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everybody. I am very excited to sit down in conversation with this week's guest, Arif Khan. Arif is a serial entrepreneur and community advocate. He invests in the people behind companies and ideas that catalyze market segment innovation, next generation solutions, and initiatives that challenge the status quo. Arif is committed to increasing the resiliency of the community he lives and works in previously serving as a city councilor for two terms, as a founding board member of the Sandbox Center for Shared Entrepreneurship and Innovation. He was appointed in 2020 as a civilian board member for the Barry Police Service. Arif is currently principal broker at Solid Ground Mortgage Solutions, director at IQ Invest Mortgage Investment Corporation, producer for the real estate and finance show Hitting Home with Mike and Arif, and CEO of software and tech agencies, Siva Creative and Agency Row. What intrigues me most about Arif is his desire to think and push beyond the status quo. He believes in embracing change as a means to staying relevant so he can serve his clients effectively. I know you guys will be as inspired by this dynamic and thoughtful leader as I am. So let's dive into the conversation. Arif, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This is fantastic. And the first thing that came to mind while you were reading that, I will be blunt, was my mother's voice telling me, you know, it's a wonder you ever get anything done because it seems like you're never focused. (laughs) That is not what I read when I, or thought when I read that. I just thought, wow, how does this guy do it all? So maybe you'll be able to share a little bit about that today, but. Well, let's give it our best. (laughs) Yeah. Before we go there, let's actually go back and, and maybe you can you can tell us about your childhood and how your mother would describe you back then. Like, what were you like as a child? And, you know, what did you aspire to be when you were growing up? Well, I was, so I'm told, I was trouble. (laughs) I was a handful for my parents because there was no cage or no box that I would remain confined in. I always looked for the way to get out. And so I would best define my childhood as certainly not academically focused, but more, I was an adventurer at heart. I wanted to be in the woods. I wanted to be riding my bike and, you know, making jumps. And, you know, I remember this one time that we did this, built this soapbox and we didn't have any business with hand tools at (laughs) my age. And so we built this soapbox and we were pushing it down the street and we were having races and it flipped over and one of the rusty nails went right into my kneecap. You know, that was me as a kid growing up, seeing whatever, whatever challenge, whatever adventure, whatever sort of 
inquisitiveness, you know, that I could I could go and explore something fun and adventurous that would that would you know have just almost like a made in t- made in made in the movies made in Hollywood type of a lifestyle. So wow, that was me growing up as a kid. And did you have any thoughts back then? You know what you wanted to be when you grew up, or was your mind not even there? Oh, absolutely. Just depends on which uh, depends on which age group you were talking about. But my very first, the very first thing I decided I wanted to when I would grow up, and this is when I was probably about four or five years old, is I wanted to be an ambulance. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because they raced down the street. They had lights and sirens, and yeah, they help people and just. In the action. <laughs> I might have been a little bit more shallow than the helping people part at age four or five. <laughs> Fair. It was more about the lights and sirens, but I wanted to be an ambulance when I was a kid. But then sort of growing up, I was always fascinated by the, you know, the entertainment world, the world of make-belief. Mm-hmm. And so probably, you know, when I matured a little bit and I started, I spent a lot of time whenever I could. I was never allowed to watch TV. Okay. We weren't allowed sugar. We weren't allowed soda or pop. We weren't allowed junk food. We weren't allowed to watch TV. And then eventually, oh, we certainly weren't allowed to listen to, you know, any of that uh, rock music stuff. Yeah. So we were very guarded in, in our upbringing, I would say, and best of intentions. Yeah. Both my parents wanted what was best for their children growing up. So we had a lot of uh, classical influences in our life. We had uh, theater. We had live theater. Okay. influences we learned to read mm-hmm. we read stories and so we would wander with our imagination there but eventually we got sort of that trickle of one hour of television a week and you know and rock and roll was uh, for me was like things like cat stevens and neil diamond so, so <laughs> yeah. imagine that when i finally had some autonomy i did rebel oh yeah you know what's, what's interesting we had a little bit of shared upbringing there where you know, I also kind of grew up with, we'll use the word a little bit more strict or, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhat closed off in some ways in our upbringing, but I was really into theater and dance, like actually myself performing in theater and live theater. And it's interesting when you don't have anything else, your imagination, right, has to kind of take over, which I think is actually quite impressive because, you know, I'm sure for yourself as well, the things that you've imagined up over the years because of that, even probably today, probably came from back then, right? Having to, you know, develop that skill back then. So it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I did resent when I was younger. Of course. All yeah. of my friends or peers, I don't even know if they were really friends, but the peers, they had lots of material things that I didn't have access to. I'm, I'm dating myself here. They had things like the Atari game machine and Intellivision and all of these yeah. different computer, you know, games, etc. We didn't have any of that. Yeah. And let's say a couple years later now, when I look back on it, I realize I actually am fortunate. I was forced to use my imagination. Okay. I was not babysat by a device. And so I am thankful for that today. And yes, I did rebel. But in rebelling, I think that helped me to become who I am. A yeah. little bit more street smart, if you will. Yeah. I mean, we've always realized these things in hindsight, right? Like the way we were brought up, the experiences we had in those really early formative years make us who we are today. And sometimes like those realizations get revealed over time, you know, 
and even in, you know, whatever ages we were at now, I'm still like, oh man, mom and dad good, did good with that one because now I know how to do this, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I have a sister and she and I couldn't be any more different. Yeah. She fell in love with reading and literature and she actually found sanctuary in her room where she would just sit and read one novel or just literature and poetry yeah. and she would write and she found her place there and today she is a professional educator she's a high school teacher and a director of the curriculum in the english department at a high school and she guides children through competitions etc and she embraced it i went the other direction well so yeah tell us more about that so you know let's talk about sort of your journey then from maybe high school to you know before kind of getting to the roles that you're in now what was what happened in those years because i know you've worn a lot of different hats over the years including sort of in you know real estate you still wear some real estate hats you had a stint in cinematography like tell us a little bit about those years <laughs> sure and i will tell you it wasn't until much more recently that i began to understand my what i don't know if it's self-inflicted or not but my predicament i can tell you that the vision that i have of people is sort of when they interact with me you're kind of scratching their head going we're pretty sure you're smart <laughs> we're pretty sure there are signs that you're you know, that you're present, that you're capable, that you're intellectual, but we haven't found it yet. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not scratching my head over here. I know. I'm pretty well, you clear didn't know me back then. That's fair. Maybe. So my journey through the education system was definitely a challenging one. I was, again, I remained a curious kid. Just, you know, don't tie me to a desk and make me write tests and exams because that wasn't my happy place. My mind was off wandering in other places. So I managed miraculously to get through high school. Okay. I did have a guidance counselor who, uh, well, actually, that's not even true. Let's go back to grade five. There was this moment where my homeroom teacher in grade five came over. This was back in the day when teachers visited for Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that. And he pretty much just said, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Khan, I, I don't know how to approach this with you, but don't count on him going anywhere too far in life because he just, he's not present. You know, so that was for me, that was the big moment. And I remember that today. And I don't carry that sort of like as a burden. That was my moment of inspiration. I was going to show this guy. I was gonna, like, you've judged me. I'm in grade five. <laughs> I love me. that you took that as inspiration because that could be pretty detrimental to have a guidance teacher kind of like chart your course for you you know, at grade five and sort of say, this guy's going nowhere. Like, <laughs> hopefully there aren't guidance counselors doing that these days, but I'm glad that you took that for fuel. So what did that really ignite in you at that time? There might've been an ounce of revenge at the time. I'm not yeah. sure, but yeah. uh, really more just a persistence, right? Determination, persistence, you know, it's, it's bittersweet that the story turns out pretty bittersweet or pretty sweet, if you will, at the end. And I'm, I'm happy to say, you know, I definitely didn't let it get me down. But that was a common theme for me. Again, it never knocked me down. I just wasn't interested. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in what I was being sold. And I often referred to, and I don't know when I came to this realization, that it's going to sound very mature for like, an, you know, a 10 year old or whatever. But I came to the determination pretty quickly that it wasn't my responsibility to learn how to learn. It was their responsibility to learn how to teach to me and the different students that were in the classroom. And I recognized that I was different. I was like, listen, if you just presented something to me that caught my attention, I'd pay attention because there yeah. are things that I did pay attention to, just not what they were selling. And so I'm fortunate because now I've got three daughters. 
and the way I am with them is very different than the way it was with me. And I will, you know, give credit where due to my parents. They did the best with what they knew. They did the best with what they have as new immigrants to Canada and that me being a first generation, they didn't know any better. And I'm fortunate I did. So the way I have been with my children is very different than the way it was with me. But the question was, you know, how did I get from sort of there to the next phase? High school was a challenge. Mm-hmm. It was a real challenge. It was funny because I went to a, a school, I went to a, a boarding school, and I was the straight C plus, C minus sort of average student. I love how everyone usually says, I was a straight A, and you're like, I was a straight C. <laughs> no, man, I was consistent. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny because I often had uh, kids uh, and students coming to me looking for guidance and, you know, help me with the physics, help me with the calculus. I was great at calculus and physics, just not writing the test. Got it. And so it was funny because we'd do like two, three hour practice sessions before an exam. They'd all come out with an A plus and I'd come out with my C. And so wow. I did manage to get through, but I finally checked myself out of school again, being a little bit rebellious. My parents were determined to sort of keep me in there because I needed the discipline. I was determined because my guidance counselor at the time in grade 11 said, which colleges are you planning on going to because you're not going to university? So I just went home that summer and said, I'm not going back. And I enrolled myself in a school in Toronto and went back to my parents and said, look, I've saved you a bunch of cash. I enrolled myself here and I got in. So I saved them. Just you can do the math on what boarding school costs. It wasn't cheap. Yeah. And I went to the school and, and I managed somehow in my OAC year to pull off straight A's. And I got into my university of choice, which I never wrote an SAT because I was intimidated. I always wanted to be yeah. a doctor and a lawyer and I never bothered with the MCATs and the, all that kind of stuff. I just didn't think I was going to do it. And I got into film school. Amazing. Here in like a Toronto-based school? or Yeah, yeah. I got into the, for, the school formerly known as Ryerson. Okay, I yeah. I think it's now called Metropolitan something school, whatever. Yeah, recent change, yeah. I have a piece of paper somewhere. Yeah. And I got into a technical production program there and I fell in love because... Before you go there, what was your interest in cinematography? Like, why did you even want to apply there? Because that's a pretty big leap from I want to be, you know, ambulance to doctor to, you know, in film. Well, so let's go to the whole conversation around self-talk. Mm-hmm. I was determined that I was going to succeed, but I was also quite familiar that I didn't know how to write exams. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's the math. I mean, it's really simple. I'm not getting into med school at this point. Yeah. With my track record, I just simply wasn't getting in. And now that's not to say that film school is for dummies, although there's probably a book in a bookstore somewhere about film school for dummies. But I fell in love with the things that really you know, attracted me, which was Hollywood. I didn't want to be a cinematographer. I wanted to blow stuff up. Mm. I wanted to be in pyrotechnics and stunts and I wanted to do all that stuff. But I figured, well, that means I wasn't going to be an actor. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be on the technical side. And so I found a program and I managed to get in. And I went to Ryerson in the technical production uh, department and then graduated from that program and went out and visited some relatives in California. And they just happened to take me past a school that was world famous for photography and cinematography. And Again, kind of like in grade 12 and 13, I went in, sat down, had a, an interview, wrote a test, and apparently got accepted to a film school. So I went there and graduated three and change years later through the Fast Track program with a degree in cinematography. 
and found myself in California, you yeah. know, working for food, working for, you know, working for rent and working for virtually free in the independent film world until I made it into the, made it into the union. Gave up all creativity by joining the film union that did pretty much formula stuff, but that was fascinating. Wow. So you're now out in California, barely scraping by, but, you know, starting your career in film. What happens after that? You know, yes, you have your TV show now that you are a part of, but other than that foot in the door, you really took a different, you know, path from following a career in, in cinematography. So tell us about that. There, there's going to be a common theme that comes up at the end. I know <laughs> it. I know there yeah. will. So graduating from film school again, well, all through film school, I didn't have the luxury that and sort of, if you will, the good fortune that some of my colleagues in school had. So I, I didn't drink. Mm -hmm didn't have money to, mm -hmm. but I didn't anyway, and didn't go out to parties. So when it was weekends, you know, when it was the, the weekend, I, uh, the school was in Santa Barbara and Hollywood was in Hollywood about an hour and a half away down the highway. So when, when friends were having fun or taking their weekends, I'd go down and see what I could volunteer on. And so that sort of got me in the door. My idea of fun, my adventure wasn't drinking or partying and not remembering the next day. My idea of fun was, you know, where could I go that in downtown Los Angeles in the middle of the night, they might be shooting a rap video or, or a film or a TV show that I could go and volunteer on. And thankfully, uh, there was plenty of it. So I was able to, through a little bit of networking with alumni from the same school and making some connections, I was able to get in and put my, you know, put my theory and, and you know, education to work yeah. and put it to use. Well, it's a bit of an interesting and colorful uh, career, but let's just say I spent a lot of time doing non-mainstream production. Okay. Uh, so yeah. That you can let your mind sure. wander Hollywood. The epicenter of a few different genres of film production, but it included the music industry and it, it included some more mature theme production. And uh, I, I was given yeah. an opportunity to start at the bottom and to learn and to, it was a very rewarding and welcoming environment. And I will challenge anybody to rid themselves of any preconceived notions and expectations of what that side of the industry is like. I haven't been there in 25 years, but it was very respectful and they had the highest standards of uh, and expectations of all of their, you know, crew members and participants to be respectful of everybody. It was a business and there were human beings who were each contributing and allowing us to put food on our table and, you know, to basically move an economy forward. And I can tell you, I have nothing but the highest respect for uh, the professionals in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it's a hustle culture too, right? Like, and that what I like about that experience that you had then, right? You went out, you got some jobs, you did some networking. It was very entrepreneurial what you were doing even back then, right? Some might say it was you were in film, but if you think about it, everyone who's in that world, it's gig to gig to gig, which is like pretty mm -hmm. entrepreneurial. You're essentially your own boss in a lot of ways. And in deciding what you want to work on, right? So would you say, you know, as we lead into kind of what brought you back to Ontario and, and whatnot, would you say that growing up, you had any idea of what the world would be like of being an entrepreneur? Or did you just fall into it? Like, was there any nudges back when you were young saying, I want to be my own boss, I want to start my own business, I want to you know, build my own thing rather than go work for someone. Did you always know that? Absolutely. I grew up in an environment where my, 
hero and my role model. I was very fortunate to have him and he's my dad. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it could be easy to say that, but it wasn't because there was nothing easy about what he did. He left his home country in India and, and eventually in Pakistan as there was a civil war. Mm -hmm. And he left home at a very young age and basically, you know, yeah. the British were leaving and he said, wait, I'm coming with you pretty much at the age of about 15. And he moved to London and not knowing anybody there, and, you know, maybe he's like sort of mid-teens. I, I, we never know because you never know when they were born. They weren't keeping records. It was other 15, 16, somewhere in there. And uh, he went to London, England, yeah. and he was a clerk, yeah. and he decided to leave London, England because the economy was terrible and there was no opportunity no future for him there not one that he wanted and he had met my mother and they decided i think it was around 1964 if i remember correctly to move to canada and he had no job prospect but he had a dream and an expectation of providing a quality of life mm -hmm. for his wife and eventual family and uh, so his whole life he never had a paycheck he didn't work for anybody uh, once he yeah. left uh, london england in, in the 60s and came to canada he was self-made and so there was no stability of employment, no stability of perhaps a, a labor union or government position or something that he could really build tenure with. It was kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, sink or swim, whichever uh, analogy or metaphor you want to use. That was that was his. So uh, he pretty much opened shop, opened his business on the day that I was born in, in uh, 1971. And he started in a world that he really had no business being in. And that was the world of office equipment, business equipment that, you know, started with things like typewriters that were manual, not even a power cord, not even electric or electronic. But he progressed and evolved with the entire industry into the newer technology like, mm -hmm. uh, like computer. Well, first of all, word processors yeah. and then computers. And then eventually into more smart technology like the scanning machines at the grocery store and video conferencing and things like this. And we're talking now in the mm -hmm. 80s and 1990s, imagine where we are today. But this is a man who wow. was in business for over 40 years, retired in his mid-70s because he pretty yeah. much had no choice, I guess, at that point, health-wise and yeah. a few other things that were going on. And through his entire tenure of his profession, he wouldn't actually never had a cell phone, wouldn't know how to turn on a computer mm -hmm. or a typewriter, barely knew how to check yeah. his own voicemail unless it had a button that said press play, had no concept of the technology whatsoever. But what he knew was who to surround himself with. And he knew how to build relationships. He mastered how to win friends and influence people without ever reading the book. And he he understood that he could be a conduit, that he could build a life and a quality of life serving people by connecting those with a need with those who have a solution. Yeah. I find this really interesting because, you know, even, even myself, right. I work, you know, some will say I work in technology, but I don't actually know that much about technology, like the deep ins and outs of it. I understand what it's used for, how it's used, who needs it and how to connect the parties together and the people together to advance, I would say technology is a how, it's not the why, right? To advance things that need to be advanced in this world. And it seems like your father really had that all along, right? Like to be in an industry that was pretty technology focused, 
but without having, you know, being the guy who didn't know how to turn on, check his voicemail, sort of like my dad too, even mm. though he was a civil engineer, he just like still, right. Like calls me to fix things around the house. But anyway, but very interesting. So that was your influence growing up. So you kind of had that around you, right. You had that example of someone who had to forge his own path. So I think, you know, you obviously adopted that and it's taken you so many places. And so if we kind of backtracking the story a bit to when you were still in California, what then, mm -hmm. you know, led you to come back and be back in Ontario? So yeah, fascinating. I mean, I loved every, uh, every single minute of being in, in California. I likened it to kind of like being an astronaut you know, where less than a fraction of a percent of the world's population mm. will ever get an opportunity. Certainly. Well, I mean, who knows what happens with Blue Horizon and, and Jeff Bezos and guys mm. like that who might make it more uh, accessible. But for the majority of us, we will not travel to space in our current lifetime. And, you know, I likened my own life yeah. to that. I followed my dream. I pursued it. I accomplished it. But it, there was a point that I reached while, where one, I realized when I traded creativity and the excitement of what we refer to as renegade filmmaking, going around, you know, without permits yeah. and just getting the shot, you know what I mean? And it was a real victory. And it was funny. We were out at two o'clock in the morning having fun. We were in our early twenties and I traded that fun and that excitement for the better paycheck. And so I joined the union and I worked with you know, some of the more prominent named studios and production houses and channels and, and, uh, the daytime soaps and the game mm -hmm. shows and, and, you know, six years on uh, one soap opera and a few years on other anyway, but I traded all of that creativity and excitement and freedom and autonomy and, and, you know, the, the ability to explore for the formula the success machine, the success formula, the formula that spits out predictable ratings and mm. predictable revenue generation for the, the backers of many of these productions, the producers who are really, the byproduct is the entertainment, the business is the advertising mm. revenue. When you did that though, were you, did you feel like you were doing that because you're like, okay, I want to now have a more predictable income or did you feel like you were selling out like what was behind that decision to go that into that side of the business mm -hmm. so for a moment there was an ounce of relief okay. that i knew where that i knew that i was going to make rent fair yeah there was an ounce of relief mm -hmm. for that and i was really good at what i did i was I was the first one to show up, the last one to leave. I, I learned, I absorbed every single thing I could. Uh, if there was a task that was, you know, daunting, I would be the first person to sign up for it. And, you know, no one else was volunteering for it. So I might as well learn to become the generator operator, be up in the crane 150 feet in the air or, um, you know, cable something or wire something or light something that might have an extra ounce of risk associated mm -hmm. with it. So that, that was me. And that was really exciting. And in, in hindsight, I realized that if you're, if you were good and you were committed, you could work every day, but I still had no certainty and I traded mm -hmm. that. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'd ever call that a regret, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. 
at that time, I also didn't have anybody who depended on me for their livelihood, for their, for their life, right? I didn't have children. I, I wasn't married. And so, like I said, that was for a moment. Okay. But then after that, when I realized that, when that wore off, the honeymoon of that wore off, I realized that I had traded my soul for mm. dollars. And that's when I knew, knew I needed to okay. quit. Uh, so I, that's when I walked away from the from Los Angeles film industry was uh, sort of the tail end of 1999 and I had met mm -hmm. somebody and uh, apparently we decided that we were going to okay. get married. So so it turns out uh, she was from back home. She was from uh, the Ontario, Canada yeah. region and uh, she was in Toronto. I was in Los Angeles and it took me going all the way to Los Angeles to meet the person I was going to marry. Isn't that how, so interesting <laughs> so. how that always works, but you know, yeah. Okay. So you meet out in Los Angeles, decide to kind of come back and now you're in Ontario. You've kind of left this Hollywood or LA lifestyle. So what do you mm -hmm. start doing once you're, once you're here? I very quickly realized I had zero transferable skill sets. <laughs> I, I wouldn't agree and, with uh, that, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the, the year that we moved to uh, to Toronto or back to Toronto, I will tell you, it was interesting because uh, uh, she thought that she w had met somebody who was going to uh, provide a life in sunny and 85 degree weather every single yeah. day. And I decided when I met her that my priority changed and that Los Angeles, for me at the time, and with all due respect to my friends who were still out there, it wasn't the place that I wanted to mm -hmm. raise a family. So we came back and uh, it just so happens it was the year that the CBC broadcasting, you know, CBC radio or television laid off about, and I, I'm reaching because it's now 22 years ago, but about about 3,000 people. Wow. There was this big overhaul of, of the organization of the CBC and they really went down to skeleton staff. And I don't know if the number is 3,000, it might've been 1,000, but it seemed like mm -hmm. 3,000. Everybody left the CBC. And so it's funny because here I was, uh, a, a native Canadian, uh, or a, a Canadian mm -hmm. born and raised in Canada, educated in Canada and had gone through the system, gone through school, did what many in the film industry in Canada, uh, would dream of, which was get to Hollywood and make it to the mm -hmm. big show. I came back and I had zero standing and zero credibility whatsoever. And there were all these people who were, you know, one year or 20 year veterans of the industry in the CBC who flooded the market and flooded the film unions and flooded the independent world uh, and had name recognition, mm -hmm. had standing, had tenure. And I was a nobody. Mm -hmm. And so it was really tough. And I had to claw myself. And in fact, one thing that was rather interesting was that uh, that it actually worked against me having this experience because of a certain form of maybe implied jealousy or maybe that it was implied that because I came from working in yeah. the United States and in Hollywood in particular, that they thought that I thought that I was better. And than you're them. like, no, man, I just want to come. Give me a job. I'll do whatever. I just but yeah, there was this perception of, oh, this Hollywood guy, even yeah. though you weren't that guy. Well, you know, you were, but you didn't see yourself that way. Yeah. It's, it's, I was still me. I just happened to have worked yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just happened to have been fortunate enough to have that experience. 
Um, but there were, anyway, let's just put it this way. It, it was an interesting journey. It was, it took me an extra long time because I was able to transfer my union membership, but they were very reluctant. They didn't do so willingly. And it was almost like I was taking work away from sure. a Canadian, even yeah. though I was a Canadian. Uh, and so there was a little bit of resentment. And so it took me a while to break in. Eventually I, 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 my reputation spoke for itself. My work spoke for itself, but it was an interesting experience because again, I, what one might've thought was an asset actually worked to, to my detriment sure. for a period of time there. And, and so again, the industry was flooded. There was a time where the dollar became stronger than the US dollar. We were around a dollar ten. I think we were inching maybe even towards around a dollar twenty back in the early two thousands. And again, um the producers in who brought the money and thought that they were coming to Canada for twenty percent savings just on the currency exchange decided that it wasn't any cheaper to work mm -hmm. in Canada anymore and they, they pretty much packed up shop and they went back and they you know made a um, contracts and, and agreements with North Carolina and other mm -hmm. states that uh, that were just cheaper to do business and so we, we became a liability as Canadians for a period of time so again it kind of dried up and it was it was my time to leave the industry I just took it as, as a sign it was my time to leave the industry and figure out something else to do and so I'd I paid attention to, um, before reading the book, I'd, I'd had a rich dad and I'd had a poor dad. And there is that mm -hmm. book out there that's, of course, famous today. Um, but I hadn't read mm -hmm. the book yet, um, but there was sort of a, my own iteration in my world. My dad, who had done everything right and worked, I mean, he was gone at six o'clock in the morning. And if we were lucky, he'd come back at six in the evening, have dinner, and then he'd go to his office and sure. do paperwork until eight o'clock. And we'd be lucky if we saw him for an hour to say goodnight kind of thing. And he worked really mm -hmm. hard. And then there was my other dad who was uh, my uncle who had met, you know, spent some time with in California mm -hmm. and he had invested in real estate. He'd purchased homes, renovated them, kept them, rented them out. He'd purchased um, a, an RV, sort of like a, tr a trailer yeah. park, an RV park and, and had multiple rentals in there. He'd purchased some other assets uh, like gas stations and convenience stores um, and what they call liquor stores out there. And, and, um, you know, he, he did not live a, a very fanciful lifestyle. He, he lived a very humble, simple lifestyle because everything he earned was going back into mm. his businesses so that he could, what I learned was, was residual yeah. income. He was going to build himself. He, he didn't have a skill set. He was elementary school educated, had worked as a mechanic, um, in his teens in London as well. And then just, knew how to work with his hands, but he, so he, he, he couldn't have a profession the way we think of professions. He, he could just work extra mm -hmm. hard and, um, he'd learned about real estate and he'd learned about the value and the power of residual income. Yeah. And I didn't understand mm -hmm. it, but I knew what he was doing. And I knew that he had multiple streams of income that even if he got sick, which he eventually did, he, he suffered a period of mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, fortunately he's managed mm -hmm. through that. But he had income because yeah. of an asset, a, a revenue producing asset that would hold him over and also hold his wife over in the event that he wasn't able to produce and provide for her what he had built and what he had invested in would. And so I looked at that and I said, you know, which one am I going to pick? Yeah. And again, literally said no transferable skill set. It's not like I was a bookkeeper who could go from yeah. one industry to another or something. 
what, what's a filmmaker, a cinematographer going to do in Toronto where the yeah. film industry had dried up? The answer was nothing. I could shoot baby videos and wedding videos, yeah. but there were, there were all the guys from the CBC yeah. were doing that. And so you saw this example of your uncle who, you know, maybe didn't have all the skills to be in the industry that he was in, but yet had made a career there and a life there and, you know, was able to support his family doing that. And probably like over time saw him like he's, you know, taking the money out of this one, investing in the next one and so on and so forth and kind of grew what sounds like a portfolio over time. So was that then sort of the example that you used to forge your next step? Well, that was certainly my yeah. inspiration. And and he had built, to this day, nobody knows what he's what he's amassed, but it's there are a few zeros in there and he's, he's done very well for himself. And, and none of it came easily. None of it came as luck. It was, you know, 30 years of reinvesting and living very, you know, always bought a used car, mm -hmm. never bought mm -hmm. new, right? Because someone else will pay the depreciation on that. And I need reliable, I don't need fancy. And today he's living a very good and stress-free mm -hmm. life. And that was something that inspired me was stress-free, um, not a leased lifestyle mm -hmm. uh, with a whole bunch of stress. And so I did start down that road. And I rather quickly realized that, well, if I'm going to start again, and if I'm going to do this, first of all, why start at the beginning? Why not learn from somebody else's successes and their mm -hmm. mistakes? And I started thinking about it. I said, well, where where is the actual wealth? being made. And I don't mean riches. I mean, yeah. wealth in general as a, as a term, because I tried being a landlord and it wasn't a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, by the time you repaired the broken door or the broken window or the thing when, you know, the tenant mm -hmm. or somebody forgot their keys, maybe they went out, had a beverage and came home and couldn't find their stuff and they broke the door yeah. down your month's income, any, any, any margin that you made on the month. Cause again, it's not all profit. You got to yeah. pay them mortgage. Kind of fix the, the roof upkeep, every now and then. Yeah. yeah. So by the time you replaced all these incidentals, mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot there. And eventually you could make it and you'd make it on the appreciation, sure. but you weren't making no. it on the cash mm -hmm. flow. And so I looked at that as an example and I said, well, who's making it mm -hmm. on the cash flow? And I realized pretty quickly it was the banks. Yep. It wasn't the landlord. Yes. The landlords were, if they played their cards correctly, we're making it on the appreciation slower, yeah. but a ba healthier balance was on the appreciation, uh, was Fair. on the cash flow yeah. as well. So I started putting that together and I got into lending money. We can refer to it as private lending or through mortgage investment corporation, uh, you know, pooling re resources of, of those who have money into, uh, in, into a licensed and a regulated fund. Uh, an administrated fund that uh, that let mm -hmm. money out. And so, you know, again, you might not get the appreciation because you're not holding the property. You're not, on, yeah. you know, you're not, you're not the title holder, but you're the, you're, you're the mortgage or, yeah. and, and sorry, the, you're the mortgagee in that, excuse yeah. me, in that particular case, and you're lending the money mm -hmm. out and, uh, and uh, somebody else is carrying the freight. Somebody else is carrying the responsibility of keeping that asset in good state of repair. And so and you're getting your route. check every, every yeah. month. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I got into mm -hmm. lending and, uh, and, and again, after a couple of years of doing that and 
meeting some interesting personalities there, the CPAs mm -hmm. and those who were sort of in charge of the books and the lawyers, et cetera. I realized, though, that we were also giving away a fair amount of other business, more conventional business. So I decided to go and get my broker's license okay. and represent yeah. if you will, any party that was in need of access to financing, whether it was private funds, mortgage investment level funds, or more traditional institutional funds. Yeah. And like, you know, to go from like, I'm just sitting back and I know you make it sound like I just went into this, but it's two very different, you know, you went to school for film, you worked in film, and now you're a mortgage investment broker did it feel that seamless to you or was like, it was just like a process and, or did you just know this is now the direction I'm going to go and I'm just going to like charge forward on this path now? Like what was going on in your mind at the time? Cause they are very different. They're, they're very different. And to bring this. And I, I'll say why I'm asking, I'll, ask, I'll tell you why I'm asking yeah, sure. actually, because I think mm -hmm. this podcast really, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this, are sometimes at a crossroads in their own life and career where they've had something that they've been doing for 20 years. They've been known for that for 20 years. Even myself, you know, I had a long career in commercial real estate and finance, and now I'm sort of going this more entrepreneurial path and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be kind of scary to navigate like, you know, this identity change almost of saying, now I'm just going to go from this film guide to brokerage or whatever that, you know, Thing might be for someone. So I'd like to just know like what it was in your head that allowed you to kind of drop the old identity and step into this, this new path forward. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I will tell you, it really is a simple step to take once you get peaceful with one thing. And the thing that I got peaceful at, and I pretty much was forced to get peaceful with it at a very young age. And I, and I told you about my fifth grade mm -hmm. teacher who pretty much said, sure. you might as well, you might as well throw in the towel now because it's not going to happen for you. And that to me, to this day, I mean, I still smile and I, I still, in, I, I, I remember sitting on the chair in the dining room and, and, and it was turkey on the table and, and there were white tablecloths and everything like that. And my parents, it was very proper to, you know, make sure that you impress the teacher kind of thing. I don't yeah. get it. But anyway, th this is what it was. And I remember the words crossing his lips and I was like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to mm -hmm. show you. And what I would offer the person listening was this is I never allowed myself to be defined by what I did. Mm -hmm. It was be defined yeah. by what, you know, why I'm doing it, whom, who I'm doing it with, and, you know, what was the mm -hmm. purpose? What, what value did I add in the equation? And so at a very young age, I was the kid who took the dare. I was the kid who, when something needed to be done, I was like, sure, you know, what have we got Someone's to Someone's got to do right? it, but let's might go. as well be me. <laughs> Someone's yeah. got to do it. Yeah, let's go do it. And, and even today, it's the same thing. So switching careers, uh, wasn't so much about switching careers. It was about what needs to be done and am I capable of getting it done or can I assist in getting it done? Do I know people? Can I put the right people in the room with the right skill sets who can get it done? And can I be a part of the equation? Because without me, perhaps, you know, putting things into perspective, without me, there was somebody who had a need. Mm -hmm. And without me, there was somebody else who had uh, an ability, but 
they never met the yeah. person with the need. Like being that so super, all I was doing was super connector. A yeah. It's, it's really interesting because in all the things that you've done, that is the common theme. And it sounds like it was somewhat yeah. the common theme for your father as well over the years. Right. So it's interesting because it's like, whether you're brokering a real estate deal, whether you're putting it to a film together and you, you know, you need to go, you know, get that crane up or whatever, or whether it is, you know, connecting two people, it's that brokering is kind of the con, you know, people think of brokerage as just this, you know, someone who gets a commission for selling a house. Like that's usually our first, but it's so much more than that, right? Like it really is about connecting someone who has a need with someone who's able to fill that need. And that kind of seems like the theme that you've just said, well, if I can be that person, then that's what I'm going to do. So very, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really what it became. And, and again, a lot of it also came from an early understanding that again, I have nothing but respect for the the incredible teachers that are out there. My daughter just graduated yeah. yesterday uh, from high school, and the impact that uh, the people who invested and breathed life into her certainly also during a pandemic, mm-hmm. when access to you know education was really challenged, the the face to face was challenged. It was the Zoom meetings and and sort of navigating through just unprecedented procedure and territory. But really what it came down to was I realized that I had an opportunity to make sure that what I went through, nobody else mm. would go through. And of course, that's a huge, that's a huge dream that, that isn't necessarily realistic. But if I could assist in assuring someone else doesn't go through that, then that's what I would do. So, you know, whether it was in finance, whether it was in film, whether it's in what we're doing today in the software space and in the e-commerce space and in marketing, et cetera. Again, I am, I'm not a software developer. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't have a computer science background. I'm not a designer. Don't hand me the mouse and expect me to figure out your Photoshop. It's not me. But what I am able to bring to table and what I was able to bring to, to the table was understanding where people are coming from, understanding them emotionally, understanding their human behavior, uh, assisting with reading people, reading their mm-hmm. relationships, and essentially the same thing. It's really brokering, brokering relationships. Yeah, I, I love that. And actually, you know, since you've sort of woven that theme throughout, tell us, like, let's bring it a little bit forward in the journey to some of the interesting things mm-hmm. that you're doing now, especially with Siva Creative. And to kind of when you met your co-founder, Mallory Steele, or, or I guess the founder, Mallory Steele of Siva Creative and how, you know, tell us the story around how you guys met and kind of why you decided to come on and join the business as the CEO. Absolutely. Well, there, there's a fascinating story mm-hmm. right there. I think you can yeah. get a podcast out of this. Uh, Mallory is, is our founder. She's my boss. Um, and uh, we met, I'm going to say it's about three and a half years ago now. She had uh, graduated as a uh, journalism mm-hmm. student and then went on to study computer science. And so she became a, a full stack developer, uh, which was essentially yeah. just basically a really good mm-hmm. developer and um, very, very technical, very savvy uh, developer. And uh, she had gone through working with, coding for um, what was known as uh, the federal department known as uh, 
Aboriginal and Northern Development Canada. And she was hired on by them to, um, to modernize their sites for accessibility purposes. Mm -hmm. So accessibility, basically making sure that people who might have hearing or vision impairment uh, had ready access using available technology to be able to read the site and navigate the site. And this is a big mm -hmm. task. So she did that. And after a period of time when she finished that contract, uh, and, and I'm not going to say no place to go, but just that contract was finished, she decided that she would learn from that experience about making sure that uh, sites for everybody, you know, the business world in general, the business community in general, and the consumer uh, were were had a better user experience and, and that there were some features that weren't necessarily... Um, the status quo yet they weren't mainstream they weren't commonly expect um, accepted yet and so she she started in a partnership with uh, another agency with some other colleagues and quickly just um, figured out for herself that um, that the priorities were not necessarily aligned okay. and she was determined to remain a, a custom um, developer mm -hmm. so she she put together a, a team of people and they made a pact and that pact was uh, to, to commit to never producing a templated website. That was it. That was just their, that was their expectation of each other. We'll never do anything templated. And there's a reason behind, and again, that's yeah. a whole story on its own, but the value behind custom development is that, um, you know, algorithms in general, search engines in general, SEO, everybody talks about things like SEO and nobody really knows what it is but they know it's a thing and they know it's important they know they need to have good mm -hmm. seo and they know they need to rank but there's a lot of uh, there's a lack of understanding of how it happens and there's a lot of um, sort of a lack of understanding as to why that's important and so in in a real nutshell when the search engines don't like duplicate content it doesn't matter whether your favorite color is pink or your favorite color is blue or what your logo is but the the ones and zeros, the, the the computer language, the code behind websites that you and I don't see as users of mm -hmm. websites. That's the stuff that the vast majority of websites are made of, uh, made from. They're made on templates. Yeah. And that's the stuff that's duplicated. And that's the stuff that the blind user, mm -hmm. remember that accessibility, Google in itself is a blind user. Search engines are blind users. That's what they're looking for, so to speak. They're looking at the duplicate mm. content of the template. And that's why so many people and so many businesses struggle with their relevance, with their prominence, with their with their authority, their ranking authority, is because a lot of them or most of them are built on So would templates. you be saying like anyone who's produced their website on a, a Wix or Square or WordPress or like those kinds of things where they've just taken a stock template, updated the words and pictures and colors, that those websites are the ones that are presenting as very similar, which is not optimal for standing out online. Is that, is that like kind of a summary, a good summary or? <laughs> I will, I will smile and nod in a favorable direction without incriminating yeah. myself, but uh, yeah, in, yeah. A, in a nutshell, yeah. We don't want to name a, any nutshell, names, but yeah, fair. Okay. Yeah. There is a difference between, and, and again, everybody, it, it's not the consumer's job to no. know. All I mean, this I have stuff, WordPress websites. Right? I mean, it's been really easy to use and update, but I get like, I'm trying to understand what you're, yeah. Okay. This makes sense. Absolutely. So, so WordPress, we look at it as it, it is a content delivery mm -hmm. system. 
it's a dashboard that allows you to use the tools and the widgets and it's kind of like using you know bill gates took uh you know the old style computer and invented windows yeah. right so that you didn't have to do the coding you just did the yeah. drag and drop in the point and click so that's kind of the equivalent WordPress, yeah. with wordpress it makes it readily available for the user but it's it's the architecture behind it that is what matters so so when you're using a template there there's likely somebody you've never met before quite possibly domestically and quite possibly overseas who made an architecture uh, okay. and, and a template for a website that you say, yeah, I like the look of that one. That'll work. And I'll just insert my logo there and I'll insert my copy and my content there and I'll drag and drop my images there and I have a website and it's great and it's functional and it, and, and for all intents and purposes, you've got a customized website, but you customize somebody else's yeah. base architecture. Got it. So the difference between what we're doing and what many of our peers are doing in the industry, God love them, they're successful at what they do. What we're doing is we actually customize even the base architecture. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, and without saving you a four-year degree, with that in mind, we just start with fresh, relevant content, both forward-facing and in the back end. And essentially speaking, the algorithms tend to see that favor. Interesting. Okay. So... This was really a vision that, you know, Mallory had and brought you on to kind of help bring it forward. So what was like, you know, let's, because I don't think we got there. How did you guys actually get in contact and then develop the relationship to say, I'd like you to come on in as the CEO? Absolutely. Well, we were, we were both actively involved in, in our community. Uh, Mallory's uh, very active in her own right in the local community, giving back. Um, and she had uh, started a number of initiatives uh, before I met her, things like uh, that we refer to as like coding for a cause. And it's our, you know, it was her ability as an organization to sort of assist with the local um, charitable organizations and not-for-profits, et cetera, to um, you know, without having cash to be able to donate, what could she do to help those organizations uh, thrive and, and have success? So she she was working on a number of initiatives with local organizations in, in the city, and I was similarly doing something uh, within organizations within the community. I had been a city councilor um, and uh, also involved in the startup ecosystem referred to as the Sandbox Center for Innovation. And, um, and, and we met, we met, uh, through a common, um, you know, uh, an organization that was trying to do some good in the community. And we both were, uh, asked to join and see if we could sit as part of the, the organizing committee to help get this event, uh, off the ground. And, and that's where we met and we got to talking and, uh, again, you know, as, as, uh, fate and, and karma and luck and all those things would have it. I mean, I'm a guy who has no business whatsoever being in a high-tech industry. I'm, I'm basically my dad, just a generation yeah. later. No business being in the industry whatsoever with no technical background whatsoever. But we found an area that we could complement each other. And that was we both wanted businesses to thrive. We wanted small business to thrive. We wanted to help people who were doing all the right things, but wondering and scratching their head why they just weren't getting it right. And, um, and she had this desire, this, this, this determination to help the business community or help not-for-profit organizations or institutions 
attain the goal of getting their messaging to the intended avatar and to being successful by definition of whatever it was that that you would call a conversion whether that means increased sales increased awareness increased membership increased participation whatever that conversion that was defined uh, for that particular organization however they defined success that's what mallory was committed to and similarly i was committed to working with people uh, from a perspective of financial intelligence understanding uh, the the core fundamentals of of business, the the principles of business, not you know, not necessarily the practice itself. So whether I was working with a a, a dentist or a plumber or a mechanic mm-hmm. or a baker or a restaurateur who had that individual skill set that made them special and unique, something that I'm definitely not. But they were struggling on the business side of Got the it. equation. Yeah. And that's what I was able to bring to the table, having had a over a decade at the time of having read financial statements, having um, I'm not an accountant, I'm, I'm not an auditor, but the ability to understand financial mm-hmm. statements and business plans and standard operating procedures and how money works and how most of us. Uh, did not get, uh, you know, a full degree in how money works. Yeah. Most of us don't have a degree in how business works, how taxation works, how, you know, economics 101, how that works. Many of us don't take it. We don't, we don't go to CEO and, school essentially, right? Like, but you know, that business savvy, some people just have it and can understand it and others can't. And so that, I feel like that partnership between the two of you really sounds like they, it's complimentary where she's got, you know, the, the technical skills, she understood, you know, the need for what she, what you guys are building in the marketplace. And then you understand maybe how to get it into the marketplace and, you know, and make sure that you have this a successful business model backing it. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. So what, well, and, and it's our understanding of each other and where we, what role we have to play in the marketplace continues mm-hmm. to evolve daily. But what we, what we really understood about each other and about what each other, you know, brought to the table was she had an absolute technical expertise and she had surrounded herself with an incredible uh, small but powerful team of Mm -hmm. people who were incredible practitioners in their craft and in their skill set. And they definitely had figured out the how. So the how to build a website that converts, a how to uh, develop and code custom, uh, you know, uh, custom product, how to market. Uh, and, And I had something different. I had an understanding of, again, human behavior principles, business principles, financial principles, and that understanding. But neither of us had what the other mm-hmm. had. But what we recognized in the marketplace was a mm-hmm. gap. And there was a gap because there are so many people out there who are talented, as I said, in their craft. They're incredibly talented in their craft. Uh, and it should be good enough. It would be nice if it was good enough to just be really good at yeah. your craft. But that in itself isn't enough. We figured it out by now, Mm -hmm. right? Many businesses, certainly through the pandemic, have figured it out that, you know, just because I'm talented doesn't mean I'm going to survive. When the entire way that the world works, when the entire way that we transact, when, when, you know, we've been, well, if you will, the the pandemic was a bit of an equalizer. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it, it changed and it made us question and it made us realize that the way we've been doing things for years, if not, you know, mm-hmm. generations, 
wasn't quite accurate. It wasn't quite truthful. It wasn't wasn't efficient, wasn't fair, wasn't, you know, like so many things, right? Wasn't innovative enough, wasn't accessible to everyone, like so so many things that we learned, yeah, we, right? We've managed to procrastinate embracing, you know, evolution. We procrastinated yeah. from embracing technology. We many businesses had procrastinated putting their dipping their toe into e-commerce or digital commerce. You know, you know I'm doing fine. This is the way I've been doing my plumbing for yeah. 30 years. I don't I don't need any of your help. And then suddenly we were cut off from each other. Nobody would see each other face to face. We weren't trading in paper currency. We everything was done with electronic payment. You know, mm -hmm. we couldn't go into each other's homes. We couldn't go into each other's places of business, et cetera. And we were forced. We were forced, if you were going to survive, yeah. to embrace technology. Yeah. And interestingly, like, you know, however you feel about COVID or not, without that type of an event, the process of change, especially in some industries that really, really needed it, like I think about commercial real estate myself, absolutely, would have, would take, would have just been prolonged. Right. And, Absolutely. and a lot of the change that is actually happening is good. It's, it's actually making things more accessible to, you know, the average person or whatnot, or we're finding better ways to do things. But I really do think about that, you know, you could have the best restaurant in the world, but nowadays, if you don't have an online presence and you don't have a way for people to engage with you in some form of use of technology, then your that's you know your business could die right mm -hmm. and so for you guys to sort of see the complementary skill sets and needs that each other could bring to the table to make a, you know a full service business succeed into into the longer term you know is really impressive and i think a lot of us are you know for me i sit here and i'm like okay, i have the ideas i have you know vision but like the the technical know-how i don't have Right. So, you know, eventually for some of the things I want to do, I, I will need that kind of a partner in my business. So, so great that you guys found each other. And so what do you, what do you really see as the future of your business and, and how have things just even evolved in the last, you know, couple of years that you've been at it? Yeah, it's uh, it's a fat. I still pinch myself on a regular basis because, you know, I, I joke about it, but it actually is something that really breaks the ice with the people we speak with. And and I think people find comfort in that because think about it. If, if you've had a business that's been relatively analog or brick and mortar for generations and technology is not something you're comfortable with, simply deciding to go down that path is daunting. Mm -hmm. Am I losing control? Is technology going to replace humans? Is, you know, am I sure I want to get into this? It seems impersonal, et cetera. And what I've learned along the way, and, and again, I say this because this is the icebreaker that neutralizes it. Businesses don't do business with business. It's people behind businesses that do business with other people behind the other business. And it's mm -hmm. about building a relationship. And, and, I, and I say this on a daily basis. I absolutely aspire to be the least qualified person in my company every single day. 
and I'd go out of my way to surround myself with people who are the technical experts, the design experts, the, the creative geniuses or the technical geniuses. And that's not who I am. Like I literally am the CEO of one of the highest tech software development tech related businesses that you can think of. We're in artificial intelligence and we're in automation and business management systems and commerce and all this kind of stuff that mm -hmm. if I was to sit down today, I have, I have no idea how my teammates and colleagues do what they do. It's just not my skill set. But what I do know is why they do what they do. And I know why we're in business. And I know who we're here to serve and how we are able to help and assist. And so really when I'm involved in a conversation and where the future of our business is going is as we continue to sharpen our skill sets and continue to you know educate ourselves through continuing education every one of our our team members is is always pursuing that you know latest and greatest piece of coding language or software or tool or widget or plugin or gadget or whatever else you want to call it stuff i know nothing about thankfully i get to focus on why and what it is that we want to accomplish and how it is that we're going to serve each other and i get to assist people in setting their minds at ease that Technology doesn't need to be this cold, daunting topic that people want to stay away from. But it's actually, if technology is used properly, the way it really was intended to do, think of it as any tool out there, whether it's in a farmer's field or in an industrial plant. The tool was just to designed to help us be more accurate, more efficient, maybe work safer, maybe work a little bit more pain-free, a little bit less manually. The tool mm -hmm. is designed to assist us in what we do mm -hmm. so that we can focus our energies and our core skill sets and our gifts into serving each other or the people we serve or helping each other and let the tool do what the tool's supposed to do. So yeah. that's where we see the future going is complementing people so that the people can get away from doing those manual repetitive processes or those things that just mm. take time that, that make them just busy being busy and allow us to redirect our energy and resources to where we're more effective, where we're more productive and where we really want to spend our time. Yeah. And maybe even more creative, right? Absolutely. Right. Like the stuff that the stuff that can just be automated, right? The human side of the business. I always say to people who sometimes, you know, that we hear about AI, we hear about technology, we hear all these buzzwords that, you know, technology really is the how. It's not, it's never the why. Correct. So if we can get it to do the thing that we need it to do for us so we can focus on an even bigger why, mm -hmm. right? Right. Because imagine you're just spending your, your whole day doing something that a computer could do. And now that gets freed up for you to do something that only you are uniquely here to do. Absolutely. Right? Like, imagine we're at a, a place in the world where everybody gets to do that kind of a, you know, thing in their life. I mean, I think that's, that's the big goal, right? I do want to ask you about, you know, because we did chat about this, about sort of the, you know, diversity and the diversity of your team and how that's been important to you. But you know, elaborate to the audience as to why it's been so important to have you know, a diverse team and a diverse company. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so important. And uh, we really are fortunate to have the incredible people that we have working with us. You know, I would love to say that, you know, that we pay the most and that's why people are here because we, you know, it's the great pay. We pay well, right? We do pay well and that in itself is attractive, I suppose, but it's not the reason why people join us. And it's not the reason, it's, 
absolutely like i don't know it's maybe number 11 out of 10 things on the list that people are mm -hmm. looking for by the time they decide that this is the place that they have to work and they want to work it is absolutely our culture that people find attractive both as people who come and apply their skill set here with us and, and really make us uh, the powerful organization that we are um, but it's also what attracts the our clients uh, to work with us because mm -hmm. they walk in and, and not all of our clients get to, you know, walk in our door. Many of our clients we meet virtually, uh, mm -hmm. but they can, they can pick up and sense the vibe that is here. And so, yeah, we have a, a wide range of people from all sorts of ethnicities and religious backgrounds and other, other backgrounds that, that really make this a fun place. You know, we've got people from, from, uh, Iran and people from India and people of, uh, Asian descent, South Asian descent. We've got, uh, people, uh, you know, colleagues from different parts of Europe who are working with us, mm -hmm. Polish people. And, and so everybody coming together and just making it that much more interesting as we get to know each other. And so We've gone through different stages of growth of the team. We do as much as we can to to meet, you know, regularly and one on one. And our our, our colleagues love coming into the office. Uh, we had to endure working remotely, but they couldn't wait mm -hmm. to get back in the office because, mm -hmm. you know, we've got a pool table and we've got um, hammocks hanging mm -hmm. from the uh, the rafters and we've got dartboards and axe throwing and we've got a punching bag and we've got all sorts of different things in the it's office fun. that yeah. it is fun and it's and it's great because these. These are professionals who have to sit burning their eyeballs against a computer screen for, you know, maybe eight hours a day. So, and, and they love doing it. They're so committed to their craft and they love the type of clients that we're attracting. It's a really weird group of, if you look at our portfolio of clients that we have, everything from accounting and lawyers to an adult sex toy uh, retailer to Ethiopian grain processor, a uh, natural TEF. Uh, processing yeah. all over all over the but place that's interesting like maybe that also the diversity of your team reflects the diversity of your clients and probably allows you guys to serve those clients even better and and worked you know with all of those different backgrounds and in one his upbringings and stuff in one place mm -hmm. like that diversity i always feel like that makes for a much stronger team Versus if everyone had come from the you know same background, same school, you know what I mean? Like, I think it helps you be a better company, right? And put out a better product and service. Well, we have a belief system, a philosophy that, that starts with get uncomfortable. And uh, it's, it's, it's in big, bold writing on our wall. And it's intentionally written, I was going to say asymmetrically, but that's not the word. But it's <laughs> intentionally written awkwardly so that you look yeah. at it, you're like, that looks weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the whole point yeah. of it. So, You're supposed to be uncomfortable looking at it. Yeah. it. Exactly. And and that's something that we start with, with our, with the colleagues that we bring on to join our team, as mm -hmm. well as with the clients that we bring on to join our team, our portfolio of clients that we work with. I mean, we get, we're fortunate. We get to choose who we're working with. Uh, and that's truly important. That's truly rewarding to be able to say, I'm each client that I'm working with is somebody that I, I get them, I understand them, and I'm passionate about their success, and I want to work with this person. And again, they could be completely from one hour to the next, a completely different industry and a different sense of purpose in the world that they're serving. But what's really interesting is that we, first and foremost, ourselves, need to realize that we need to break, we need to unlearn so much, all of the habits that we've learned, all of the conditioning that we've 
allowed ourselves to be subjected to, maybe before we were aware that we were being subjected to it, right? So we have to break that. And then we have to share that with our clients because the only time that we're going to find success is when we're all willing to, you know, uh, look at things and be accepting of a different perspective. Because here's the reality. There are over 3 billion websites out there in the cyber universe. 3 billion. What makes you think that someone is going to stumble across yours randomly and that you're going to be successful randomly, especially if you do the same thing that everybody else has done and you use the same formula and you use the same template and the same approach and the same commonly accepted best practice and you do everything the same as everybody else, you're only bound to get the same results, which isn't the successful result that you want. So we start with that. And then the other thing that we add to it is straight from, it doesn't matter which position you hold within the company. Like we do not have any jacks of all trade, so to speak. We have specific snipers or experts in each of their, their fields. But there's one thing that we all buy into, and that is that none of us have an opinion. We're not entitled to an opinion. None okay. of us. What we are in. And what do, you mean, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it do, doesn't matter if my favorite color is blue. I can't make every website blue. Yeah. Our only opinion that we follow is what the data teaches us. When we do our research, when we do our market research and we study our avatar with whom we are uh, looking to engage through marketing, that that end user, the client Mm -hmm. that our client is trying to connect with. So we're very particular when we onboard a new client and we tell them right up front, not only are you going to have to get uncomfortable, but you're also going to have to relinquish micromanagement and control of your own brand because Mr. or Mrs. Client, your opinion doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Just the data matters. Yeah. And I realize what you're going to write the check, yeah. your credit card's going to clear because you're going to pay us for our service. But what matters is that we resonate with your audience, the intended yeah. audience. And the only opinion that counts is the person who's going to buy your product or service. Yeah. You know what? There's so many good nuggets in what you just said. First of all, I like this. What just get comfortable being uncomfortable is Mm -hmm. kind of the motto that I heard coming through. And I think it's an important way to live life because things are just constantly changing anyway. So you should never get too comfortable. Plus you can't grow from a place of just comfortability, I find. But the second piece of let's just let the data guide our decisions. That's going to be in the best, highest and best good for your and client is really important. It is one that I think, you know, just coming from my world in commercial real estate, when we're talking about the future of work, there are so many leaders out there who, you know, are inherently biased because they want people back in their buildings and they're not looking at the data and making these decisions. They're not looking at how are people working? Where are people working from? Why are they doing this? What do they want? How can we change our buildings? Like all of this, can we not just use the data to make the decision rather than what we, you know, we want the color blue. So we're going to get the color blue. So I love, I love what you share there. And I, I know you and I have chatted before and I found that in conversations with you, I can, we can go on for forever. So we'll have to have a part two, but I would love to ask you a couple more questions sure. as we kind of round out our time together. I mean, things were just getting interesting, but I, we've already chatted about, you know, in the future, we'll, we'll go deep on a subject or something, but this was a great sort of intro to you and and what you do. I'd love for you to leave our audience with, you know, a couple nuggets of, you know, some of the, 
the learnings that you've had along the way. And if, if you were ever to start your entrepreneurial journey again, like, is there anything that you would do differently? Or is there any piece of advice that you would give to our listeners that are considering a path of entrepreneurship? Absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, it's such a huge question. I know. And, and I'm going to do my very best to offer it the justice it deserves. But to anybody who's thinking about it, and what would I go back and do differently? First and foremost, I, I only have that one regret. And I don't even know that it was a regret yet. Because if I didn't, if I hadn't made that shift from being an independent filmmaker to joining the union and looking for that sanctity or that safety, that stability, of a union job with some of the large name studios, I'd never have known. I'd never know the difference. And so that experience allowed me to understand that the choice I made, you know, what the consequences of that were. And it made me appreciate mm -hmm. everything. So I've never looked back with any form of regret or resentment. I've always looked at it mm -hmm. as, okay, great. So now I have that experience. What do I do next? Yeah. But what I would definitely share with people First and foremost is this, is, is get peaceful with who you are, you know, mm, be peaceful because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for the decisions that I make in life. I'm responsible for the choices I make. I'm also responsible for the care that I have over my family and my children uh, until they are ready and able and willing to take on those responsibilities for themselves. But so at the end of the day, you know, be true to yourself, do what you feel you need to do, even and especially when it's not popular. And in mm. fact, if it's not popular, then you may be on to something. Mm. Oh, I like that part. Definitely. I liken it to the fact that, you know, there are some conferences there that, you know, thousands and thousands of people are in attendance and they're watching the person on stage and that person on stage is sharing information and and in fact, it's buy my product and subscribe to my, you know, whatever that subscription is or whatever. And, but you've got thousands and thousands of people in the room and they're all going and doing the same thing. And if you feel like you don't fit in there, and if you feel like that just doesn't fit right and you have to go a different direction, go that different direction. Mm -hmm. Because again, at the end of the day, you need to figure out what your value proposition is, what makes you different. And life should never be about trying to appease the masses that's a battle you can't win. Yeah. And if you can just dominate or become successful or become the premier provider of that product or service in a very niche market, even if it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the market, but if you do it well, you can be exceptionally successful. Yeah. And you're, wor I, you're working with people you want to work with and you're working with the people who are equally passionate and they've got that buy-in. So I, I guess what I would leave it with is this, is that when you're speaking with your client and you invite them and they embrace the journey of getting uncomfortable and questioning everything that they thought they knew, more often than not, we found that our clients thought that they were selling something. But when we actually looked at the research and the data, we found out that their, their client was trying to buy something a little bit different. Mm. And you were just off by that one degree or that very small percentage and so be careful about what you think you're selling because if you want to be successful, we'll figure, is, yeah. is there a market that actually is interested in buying what you have or is there a market that's looking to buy something that nobody yet is providing that you have the ability to make a slight adjustment yeah. to and you can provide that. So trust your gut, listen to your instincts, don't worry about what everybody else is doing, follow your heart, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
sprinkle a little bit of data in there and a little bit of research mm -hmm. and that'll provide you that confidence that even if not everybody else is doing it you now have taken your own bias out of the equation and you just want to be successful mm -hmm. you just want to do the right thing and you allow the data to assist you in in that journey i think that breeds a lot of confidence that even if the world seems like it's against you you know that you have some conviction in it yeah. yeah yeah that's what i believe you with. i i think those last couple minutes that i'm like wow this is this is so important from both a company level if you're, you're starting a company but from a, a personal level too i think that if we apply those same metrics or same ideology to our life of you know don't worry about what everybody else wants for you and for your life first of all figure out what you want what you're uniquely here to do what you how you can uniquely serve others and then back it with some data does does anybody even need what i'm selling right mm -hmm. and but i think that so often we're trying to conform into what we think everybody else wants us to be and how we are supposed to present in the world and how our website's supposed to look and what template we're supposed to follow and it's really when you decide to just follow your own template, create your own template, follow your instincts, that that's where the, the magic starts to happen. And I will say that I think that's the real through line in a lot of your story that you've shared with us today, that you've really been such a master of following that, even though it's iterated and changed over the years and it's come in different packages, you've kind of stayed true to you know, charting your course in the way that, you know, best served you at the time, but also served others. And I think that that's so important and, and we should all really aspire to that. So I go, I go back to my daughter, I go back to yeah. my little five-year-old and she just asks why a whole bunch. She's curious yeah, and no, nobody's stolen yeah. her spirit yet, thankfully, and, and we're doing our best to not do that. But just mm -hmm. if, if, if we as, as mature adults can continue to ask why and be curious and ask questions and then figure out if there's if there's somebody else who's searching for that same thing that we can yeah. we can help them along the way so but I, i've really enjoyed this with you thank you rf likewise i think it's been such a fun time and i could talk to you for you know another hour or so but we'll save that for a part two but i really appreciate you coming on here and being able to sort of share your story with our audience so yes thank you for your time thank you thank you for having the audience and thank you for what you're doing i really hope that you know we were able to offer just something one takeaway maybe but uh, really appreciate the the work that you sure. put in and and the the effort in your own journey that uh, that you have done in terms of finding yourself and what your purpose was i i remember your story that you introduced me to and and how you found mm. to be yourself to be here and inspire other people through your own curiosity. So thank you for creating the platform. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Ara. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Futura Talks. I hope it has left you inspired and motivated to pursue your dreams, find your calling and follow your heart in your life and business. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much to me if you would consider leaving a review and better yet, sharing this episode with someone who will be inspired to start building their own Futura. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I will see you next week.